Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Marvin Lowe will be with us uh, right now. He's global macro strategist at State Street Global Markets. Kaylee Lines, why don't you lead off with Mr. Lowe? Well, Marvin, obviously, as Lisa was saying, that the market is looking for confirmation in this data of a more hawkish, more quickly moving Federal Reserve. Do you think the repricing of those expectations has been overblown, given the numbers that we're seeing? You know, what? Uh, today's data just confirms that we're moving in the right direction. Activity is um, accelerating to the fourth quarter. Um, that's no new news. Um, there, is, there are hints that the job market is, um, is pretty good in today's numbers. So it really does become that interplay between inflation and jobs. We know inflation is more than what they want. Um, if, there are signs that, if there are signs that the job market is going to heal itself faster than, let's say, the, the second half of next year, um, you know, rate hikes are going to be live. But having said that, we're already pricing in mid-2022 uh, and starting to think about May of 2022. So I, I don't see how much more we can get from an aggressive uh, side of things. And the Fed probably likes that. It's getting the market to do the tightening for them before they actually have to get into the, the soup and nuts there. When can we actually count on this data not being noisy? I mean, I'm looking right now at initial jobless claims. And from my data, what it looks like is that this is the lowest claims figure going back in decades. This is uh, what seems to be a hot market. And yet, as Michael McKee was saying, it could be noisy. It is holiday time. At what point can we say, no, this actually reflects reality? Uh, you know what? I, 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 I think about how this year has evolved, where we started in the beginning of the year and we said by the middle of the year, we we're going to get clean data. Um, and then it was going to be then it was going to be in the fall and then we're at the fall going into the winter. I think it's going to take until the middle of next year before we get a real solid picture of what jobs looks like, what prices look like, how these oh. uh, supply shocks are, are going to make their way out. The Fed's going <clears> to <throat> have to make some hard decisions based on data that's not perfect, however. Um, but we've got a lot of moving parts and uh, right. you know, that pricing data is, is, is really uh, going to be in flux. Uh, Marvin, that's beautifully said. And around all the different opinions we have on Bloomberg surveillance, what we can say is consensus is ephemeral, to say the least, except we <laughs> still have to invest. What is your investment stance, given your ambivalence or your wait and see until 4th of July 2022? <laughs> we, 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 we do have to invest. And, and we've got to look at what we think the the world is going to look like and which, you know, ultimately companies and economies are going to uh, to benefit from that. Um, I do think that the long end of the curve is sending messages. The fact that, you know, whether it's a, um, a Greenspan type conundrum or a view that uh, growth becomes dear again once we get to the other side of things is telling for me. So, you know, I continue to like um, like the growth aspects of the U.S. economy. Um, I do think yields uh, have remained contained and will remain contained. That right. means that uh, growth is dear, income is dear, um, and and globally, you look for those environments that can benefit from that type of environment. Uh, Marvin Lowe, thank you so much. Too short a visit here with all this economic data with State Street today. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. 
what we do is speak to experts, and Mike Wilson is uniquely qualified at Morgan Stanley to lead their equity coverage. He does so with some terrific securities analysis at his back and economics of Ellen Zentner as well. Mike Wilson, I want to go to the wonderful Katie Huberty, who's looking at hardware and tech, and what Katie Huberty says to your cautious call on markets, would everybody calm down? Supply's going to come back, and we're going to get back to some normal. Why will stocks be quiescent if we get back to Katie Huberty's normal? Well, thanks, Tom, and happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Uh, look, I think um, well, Katie is actually very much in kind of our page. Yes, quite frankly, uh, she's very focused on you know the you know the supply channels are not going to rectify themselves quickly, and there's a chance that we've actually seen some overordering uh, along the supply chain, particularly in tech hardware, which is her area of coverage. And and, and so we're, we're aligned. Uh, in fact, uh, I would say Katie and I are more aligned than I am with some of the other analysts at, at, at the home company and uh, around this idea that we could have a payback. As supply comes on, we might see some double orderings uh, canceled, and that may take a little time to digest. So we have, I think, a supply issue now that's pretty obvious. Inflation is the, you know, the talk of the day. The Fed's reacting to that, and I think that's appropriate. However, there is a possibility that you know, we get into next year, and as supply kind of picks up, you know, we actually <clears> see <throat> demand curtailed, right? Because we did overconsume a lot of things, and tech hardware was one of those right. areas. And that's going to take a little time to work through, Tom. And that's one of the reasons why <clears> we think next year, it's, you know, at the index level, we've, we've priced in a lot of good news, and it's probably going to be more of a flattish year. Mike Wilson, David Will, David Wilson, no relation, retiring from uh, Bloomberg here in a bit, just put up a spectacular Chris Verone chart, which shows Russell 1000 versus 2000. And you know the lack of breadth in this market. Is part of the Mike Wilson call that big tech will be crushed? <laughs> Well, crush is a strong word, but I mean, look, our, our big out of consensus call for next year is valuations. Then that was, you know, somewhat of our call this year too, which didn't fully play out because the rates market backed up again. But now it's moving in the in the direction that we expected, meaning, you know, the, as the Fed moves towards actually tapering, which they're doing now, and have to address these higher prices. I think we got kind of a you know, an interesting meeting this week when the when you know Powell was renominated and and of course uh, you know Brainerd was announced as the vice chair. You know, this Fed is going to take probably a harder stance on, on what's going on in inflation. They're going to they want to show that they're they're not, you know, falling asleep at the switch and they're doing their job. And I think that's what the rates market is reacting to here. And that's in other words, our rates call is going to end up being, you know, rates higher. And that's a, a headwind for valuations. And that's what's happened in the last three or four days. Is that the end of the world? Is it the end of the bull market? Of course not, because the earnings story is still quite good. But, you know, to have peak multiples on sort of, you know, peak rate of change, is unusual. And we just think it's taking a little bit longer than normal. We think it'll happen in the first half of next year. Multiples come down and then we move on our merry way. It's not, like I said, it's not the end of the world, but we have to, we have to deal with higher rates, tighter financial conditions. And that means lower multiples uh, overall. And will, will large cap tech feel that? Of course they will, just like every other stock will. What's so interesting about the range of forecasts for next year is the disagreement on the, both the pace of the economic uh, momentum as well as the read-through into the market. The idea here that you do think that we're going to see a deceleration, but that the Fed will still hike rates and that that still will be viewed as a tightening uh, cycle that will reduce valuations. 
How do you push back against TD Securities' call that that deceleration in growth will actually keep the Fed on the sidelines and allow markets to continue to grind higher as they prepare for both very easy monetary conditions as well as a still robust economy? Well, look, I mean, our house call as well, we, we assume that the Fed's going to move more slowly than the market on rate hikes, okay? But the removal of asset purchases to, you know, basically to zero over the next eight months, I think it's pretty naive to suggest that that won't have some dampening effect on valuations. More importantly, Lisa, I mean, this is right in line with our mid-cycle transition call. This is the way it always works. So, you know, we've, we've written about this for a while. I mean, eight months, talking about how this is very similar to 1994, 2004 and 2011, as the economy recovers, the Fed is supposed to react to that. That's their job and they're going to do their job. And that's the normal progression. You get the accelerative part of the recovery. That's great. Multiples actually expand at the same time. That's what we've had. And then as the Fed removes policy accommodation, multiples come down. So, you know, to, to think that that's not going to play out this cycle, um, I mean, we're going with the odds. And that's, and, and I think that process has begun. It was somewhat interrupted in October. We saw valuations actually expand again as rates came down. And, and also, I think, uh, as you know, we saw the seasonal trade. And then once that seasonal trade is over, I think we'll be back on the path of just multiples coming down. And it could be a, it could be a, a, you know, a, a modest process. It doesn't have to all happen at once. You know, we're talking about multiples coming down over the next 12 months. So if it's gradual, you know, the market will deal and it will, it will be sort of, it'll be just be sort of a, a chop. I don't think it's going to be a crash or anything like that. That's not what we're calling for. We're, and, and really, the opportunity is going to be finding the right things to own within the equity market, something that we, we, we spend a lot of time on. All right. So what is it? What do you want to own? So right now, we're very focused on earning stability and valuation, not surprisingly. And one of the sectors that we think has uh, those qualities you know, right now is healthcare. Healthcare <laughs> is um, delivering, delivering on the earnings uh, quite nicely. And it's actually extremely cheap relative to its history. Uh, and that looks pretty attractive. Uh, real estate, believe it or not, REITs look attractive in this kind of an environment. And we also think financials look good because, you know, they should do better as rates move higher and they're cheap. So those are three sectors that we're recommending right now. Mike Wilson, thank you so much for joining us, particularly on this holiday Wednesday. Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley, of course. What is known is that the Royal Bank of Canada, with a terrific research team, including Thomas Porcelli, writes in King's English. The only one who does not is Amy Wu Silverman. It's Greek to you. It's Greek to me. And trust me, it's in the Greek letters of the derivative space as well. We're thrilled that Amy Wu could join us uh, this morning. Amy, I, I, I look at where you are, and I want you to dovetail it right into Lori Calvacina's uh, constructive call on the market. When you look at skew, kurtosis, and the rest of the options, dynamics. What does it mean for Lori Calvacina, our listeners and viewers? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, Lori and I talk a lot about, you know, what her overarching equities views look like in terms of the derivatives market. And I will tell you, the IWM implied volatility and skew, you know, your favorite term, Tom, has been dovetailing with what Lori's been saying, which is that we will see a second leg up in that SMID slash value section and you see that in the derivatives market with the skew much more flat or bullish uh, than you do in something like the large cap tech growth area. 
Amy, I don't speak Greek, but I am looking at what could be potentially some froth being pushed out of the market in select areas. I'm thinking particular, uh, particularly of the software and internet stocks that were the darlings in the wake of the pandemic. We saw hedge funds really pile into those trades, even as they climbed higher and higher. And now we're seeing the likes of Zoom and others really get punctured by reality, by the slowdown in their growth. How much is this indicative of broader froth that's being punched out of the market as people sort of realize that we're in a new territory with the Fed perhaps less accommodative? Yeah, look, Lisa, you know, when you want froth, you definitely come to the options market. You know, it's just been the home of momentum of this kind of crazy retail call buying. Uh, you know, yesterday, the options market woke up, in my opinion. Uh, we've been talking a long time about how that skew in uh, the queues was really not that expensive. People were really not focused on downside, despite, you know, what we know about rates ahead. And that changed yesterday. We saw a pretty dramatic shift in uh, hedging. We saw a lot of it in queues both through year end and through next year. And that skew indicator is starting to move. It's becoming more bearish, which really makes sense in the context of, you know, what we know Powell has to do in the coming year. Well, Amy, in a world where everything seems to be getting more expensive, is it going to keep getting more expensive to hedge? I think so. You know, and we've been kind of banging the drum for a while saying, look, it's been so cheap to hedge. Does anyone want to hedge? And, you know, the, the answer has been no. And I always feel like, you know, people need to see a shoe to drop before they think about it. And of course, when that happens, your hedging is going to become more expensive. Your VIX is probably going to cross that 20 psychological barrier. But that is when people are going to start looking at it. Yeah. OK, well, if I'm looking to hedge while it's still more cheap, where do I do it, Amy? Yeah, you know, one, uh, I, I guess I call it like the, the dirty little secret of finances. People love to use IWMQs and SPY, right? Because that's what everyone else uses. That's what you benchmark to. But if you look to XLC, the S&P uh, communications ETF, it has about a 90% correlation on a five-year realized basis to NASDAQ, to the Qs. And it has a lot of the same names. It has your Netflix. It has your Facebook. Uh, it has your Twitter and, you know, it, it could be an interesting one because that implied volatility level is very inexpensive on a relative basis compared to Q's, but it's just as good as a tail hedge if you see those growth headwinds come. Amy, very quickly here, unfortunately, what do the bears get wrong? I think there's, especially for derivatives people, there's this case to be made of when a tail looks cheap. You just feel like you have to own it, not necessarily because you think the probability is higher, Tom, but just because, you know, in, you're in a world where you think about things from the bang for the buck of that tail. I think that's what bears get wrong when they see tails that cheap. They ask, why is it that cheap? Um, and sometimes it's that cheap because things are good. Amy, thank you so much. Amy was Silverman there. Equity derivatives, RBC, a capital market. Bhakti Ansadi uh, joins Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Johns Hopkins. Bhakti, the chief executive officer of a major pharmaceutical company, just stated that this is trending towards endemic, which basically to amateurs like me says all clear. Are we all clear on COVID? Absolutely. Not all clear. Absolutely. Not an endemic. 
Okay, well, you, that's a, it's radio and TV back to you. You got to give a longer answer because I don't have enough <laughs> good questions. If it's not endemic, <laughs> what is it? The leader of New Zealand came out overnight and said, you know, we still have a challenge here and a problem. We all know each and every story. How far are we from what the CEO of AstraZeneca was talking about? So we're still in the midst of a pandemic, which means we still don't quite know how to like overcome the current burden of disease from the from the virus. Um, there are still daily deaths. There are still daily resource limitations. Um, we have some strategies that we know to be effective, such as social distancing, vaccinating, but that has proven to be not enough. Also, the virus will continue to evolve. Um, we don't know when that's going to happen. We've been very fortunate so far. It's been a couple of months since Delta emerged. Um, but that's something to look out for. We, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned as I look at the numbers, Dr. Hansadi. It looks like even in areas where there's high vaccination rates, you're seeing surges in the number of cases. I'm thinking of South Korea in particular, with 79% of the adult population with both shots of vaccine, and yet you're seeing the highest number of cases diagnosed going back since the start of the pandemic. Does this indicate that the vaccines are less effective than we thought they were? So I don't think it indicates that the vaccines are less effective. Remember, testing is also going up. We're more likely to test routinely prior to big events, um, prior to going to work in many situations. Um, mortality hasn't gone up. Hospitalizations are lagging behind. So vaccines are definitely effective. I think human behavior plays a big part in this virus. And what we're seeing in the North and the Midwest is that it is getting colder. People are going indoors. People are feeling more confident because they're vaccinated and their behavior has changed. And all of that together is leading to these surges. How concerning is that for a place like Detroit, Michigan, where you can see that the percent of cases, it's now about 600 uh, per 100,000 individuals getting diagnosed with COVID. And you're seeing the people in the ICUs, about 90% of them have not been vaccinated. How concerning is this that we're seeing the surge right ahead of the winter months, right ahead of Thanksgiving, right ahead of when everyone gets into a small room and breathes on each other. Absolutely. So the concern is that the number of cases is perhaps the tip of the iceberg, and which means that a large number of patients will still have asymptomatic infection. With vaccinated individuals, the iceberg has gone from this to this, which means there's a higher proportion of asymptomatic individuals because people are not, due to vaccines, you're not mounting the symptoms or getting as sick. Um, the challenge is, is that, say, if you were to travel to Michigan for the holidays, then the airports, um, staying at a hotel, there is a, all of these are opportunities for getting sick. Dr. Hansati, I feel like I've asked this question many times throughout the pandemic, and each time it's proven that, in fact, there aren't enough people with natural immunity or not enough people who are vaccinated in order for the case curve to be prohibited from climbing dramatically upward. Are we getting closer, though, to that point? Yes, I think our surges would have been much higher, given the fact that children are in schools, work has resumed as normal for many individuals, and people are traveling again, taking vacations again. I think if the vaccines, some inherent immunity, um, we would have had much higher surges um, and would have been right where we were six months ago. Bhakti, thank you so much. Bhakti Hansadi, greatly appreciate it with John Hopkins. It's an annual visit and always poignant because no one has changed American travel 
in the last decade than Brian Kelly. Long ago and far away, young James Gorman at Morgan Stanley would call up even younger Kelly and say, Brian, fix my computer. And he went off and left Morgan Stanley and completely changed the travel business in this nation with the points guy. You all know the website, the 47 charge cards. I'm pleased to tell you up in advance, Brian's going to Ecuador for $99.47 here in a week and well. Has your world changed, Brian, because of the pitch battle in the credit card world between the traditional guys, Klarna, Affirm, and the rest? Is it business as usual for you this Thanksgiving holiday? Yeah, you know, the Klarna and Affirm, those payment firms, they're not really impacting the the customer that we're talking to, the high-end travel consumer. You know, what has impacted that, it used to just be Amex and it was Amex and Chase. Now we're seeing Capital One just launched a Venture X card to kind of combat that Sapphire Reserve. So there's so much happening in that premium credit card space. And it's good for consumers because the bonuses are out of control. In your free time, I want you to bring the 747 back to British Air. But what I see, Brian, as we changed in the pandemic is the airlines are really going after their loyal customers. Will that sustain when this horrific pandemic is over? You know, I think, you know, they extended loyalty. They've certainly been very friendly, you know, not expiring miles. But what they really need to change is the in-flight product. I flew Barcelona to, to Newark the other day. And they're still For $99.32. Continue. Class. Yeah. I mean, I guess I couldn't, shouldn't complain too much. But I do pay for tickets from time to time. But I do think that the airlines need those premium business travelers and they need to reinvest in their product. They can't just keep saying because of COVID, we can't give you anything but slop for a meal on a plane. So I do think they need to reinvest in service. Well, because of COVID is, you know, something you add to a lot of different sentences these days. Obviously, this holiday season of COVID times looks a lot different than last holiday season does. How is that playing out in terms of people's desire to travel? You know, I I think the system is fragile, to say the least. We've seen meltdowns from Southwest and American Airlines. But luckily so far this week, things are good. Uh, You know, no major storm issues. People are traveling in record numbers, more than twice as many as last year. People are excited to travel again. And, you know, we just heard this morning New Zealand's going to open up in April after nearly two years or more than two years actually being locked. So I think travel is going to continue increasing. We're going to see these surges, you know, that we're seeing now. But, uh, you know, I think for the vaccinated traveler, there's going to be more options than ever. And, And I think consumers are ready to get back on the road. Brian, we talk a lot about the high consumer savings rate because people, you know, got a lot of stimulus because of the pandemic. They saved a lot of money. They just weren't spending it. Do people just have like a vast trove of points ready to deploy or have they already started deploying it? No, absolutely. They, there are so many points. It's it's hard to tell because the, the banks don't report how many outstanding points they have exactly. But there's a huge amount. And, you know, the banks are actually now allowing you to use those points for non-travel. Yeah, you know, I can use mine are, on Apple products. Yeah. Yeah, this this Friday, you can get away luggage using your chase points. So they're trying more and more ways for people to use them since they're not traveling as much as they were in the past. Um, But I think what we're seeing, too, is that people are traveling longer and they're spending more on travel, uh, especially because they can work from abroad now. So a lot of people are spending a couple weeks working and traveling abroad. So that's the key trend that I think is going to be a boon for the travel industry. They're going to see longer, more expensive stays and flights, you know, as travel continues to recover. Brian, Mr. Capiano of Marriott and Marriott Bonvoy darkened the door recently and joined the show. And, you know, the hotel people have been through an absolute nightmare. What is the distinction between airline, the points guy cards, 
in a hotel the points guys cards you know the hotel cards have gotten really good in that you get so many perks you know for a 95 dollars card you get a free night at a 300 dollars hotel it's very easy to get value back on those hotel branded cards I think where consumers are frustrated with hotels in general is that because of COVID, we can't offer you all of these services. We're going to charge you. Some hotels charge $150 just on a resort fee. You know, we on some of the luxury hotels, which is baloney, considering you don't get half of those services. So I think what the hotel industry is going to have to reconcile is with the staffing issues they're having. You know, rates are up. They're making money. But consumers are getting more and more agitated with paying for full service and not getting it. And that's why Airbnb has seen huge increases over the pandemic. Well, in, ter- in terms of agitation for paying more, Brian, I have the Chase Sapphire Reserve card and I get a lot out of it, don't get me wrong, but I also have to pay more for it. It seems every year it gets more expensive to have that credit card. Is that the trend that as you see more of these card companies competing with each other in those types of cards, it's just going to get more and more expensive to have it? Absolutely. You know, American Express Platinum raised its rates, but mm-hmm. they reported amazing success with it. You know, consumers do want to feel like they're part of something that they get a lot of value out of. Um, So, you know, premium credit cards aren't going away anytime soon. Even that new Capital One card, the Venture X that launched, that has a a pretty hefty fee, but it's so easy. I I urge people don't get a no fee card just because there's no fee. As my dad said, cheap is expensive. Those no fee cards, (laughs) you're a good consumer. You're not, you can easily get way more value back by getting a a card with an annual fee. You just got to do the math. Brian, I'm not going to mince words. You changed my life. Until you came along, I was looking at, you know, fancy pants, business class travel. And, you know, frankly, folks, if you just do what Kelly says, it actually works. For the new year, for our listeners and viewers, what's the number one way to affect cheaper travel? Well, the, the number one thing is, you know, collect your points and, and understand how many points you have. You know, we just launched the Points Guy app where you can track all of your loyalty points in one place. We'll even give you your net worth in points. And I think people don't realize how much value they have sitting around in these loyalty points. And my number one tip is use them. Right. Uh, you know, the airlines let you change your if you use your freaking flyer miles, you can you have more flexibility than if you buy a paid ticket. So use right. your miles and points in 2022. Did you once fly from New York, New, New York, JFK to Heathrow and they paid you to take the trip? Did you actually do that? <laughs> No, I mean, so I, I will always, you know, even when I use miles, uh, you know, I always have to pay taxes and fees. And at the points, oh, guy, we don't terrible. take freebies from the airlines. We we, we pay. But, uh, you know, we do, I definitely get a good deal when I travel. I'm shocked. <laughs> Brian Kelly, thank you so much for the points, guys. Truly, all the Internet and dot com people. He's changed our lives more than anyone. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.